Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the most influential Muslim movement in the world that you've probably never heard of. Bareilvism. Bareilvism takes its name from its founder, Ahmed Reza Khan Bareilvi who died in 1921. And he in turn takes his name from the North Indian town in which he was born and which he spent most of his life teaching, the town of Bareilly. During his career in the last decades of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century, Ahmed Reza Khan issued hundreds, thousands of ethical and legal rulings, fatwas, legal opinions. He also wrote numerous texts on the moral, ethical, and indeed theological concerns of ordinary Muslims from across northern India and what's today Pakistan and Bangladesh. He had many students, and those students who came to study with him in time went on to found their own schools, their own madrasas. In 1947, with the independence of the Indian subcontinent from British rule, and the founding of Pakistan, and a quarter century later of Bangladesh, those followers and the many dozens and in turn hundreds of madrasas they founded would have great influence across the Indian subcontinent. And as Muslims from South Asia migrated to other parts of the former empire, the Commonwealth and beyond, to South Africa, Australia, Canada, Britain, the United States and other countries, they would take their Berelvi beliefs and indeed, in some cases, their Berelvi teachers along with them. Today, estimates vary greatly about the number of Berelvi's followers of Ahmed Reza Khan's movement. But those estimates range from something like around 200 to 250 million people who are influenced by in varying degrees, the rulings, the legal, moral, ethical opinions issued by Ahmed Reza Khan and the many other religious teachers he trained or were trained by his own disciples. Joining me, leading me in our conversation today is Professor Usha Sanyal. She's the author of several books on Ahmed Reza Khan Barevi, including Devotional Islam and Politics in British India, which is published by Oxford University Press, and Ahmed Reza Khan Beledvi in the Path of the Prophet, which is published by One World. Hello, Usha. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello, Niall. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so honoured to have been invited to do this podcast with you well it's it's a it's a pleasure and it's a real honor for for, for for me Usha and indeed for all of the listeners to hear about your really pioneering research on the Berelvi movement or simply Berelvism 
many listeners and many newspaper readers will surely have heard of various Muslim movements, Muslim reform movements that have entered the sort of the lexicon, the political, the lexicon of the English language, Wahhabism, Salafism, perhaps even Deobandism, the other, and in many ways, the rival theological or religious movement that emerged out of South Asia, what's now India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh in the, the latter part of the 19th century. But far fewer people will have heard about Barelvism, but its importance way outweighs its, uh, I don't know, its, its name recognition, its visibility, particularly its visibility in the English-speaking world. So, yeah, we'll be talking then today about this Berelvi movement or simply Berelvism that emerged, as I mentioned, in India in the latter part of the 19th century and still today remains hugely influential in today the nation states of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and their diasporas around the world today. So perhaps can you start us off by introducing us to the key characteristics of this Berelvi vision of Islam? Okay, thank you very much for that question. Um, firstly, let me say that uh, the term Borelvi, it, the reason it's not that well known is because it's a specifically South Asian movement and uh, term. Um, and it comes from the name of a town, which is Boreli in the North Indian state of UP. Um, and in this sense, it is the term Borelwi is very similar to the term Deobandi in the sense that they both refer back to the towns, um, not even major metropolitan centers, but really just small towns in um, uh, one particular part of North India, which are those places are associated with the origins of these two movements. So let me say that uh, the, the railways are a Sunni Muslim movement in South Asia that began in the late 19th century in the context of British rule, the onset of British rule after 1857. Um, and it was one of three major movements at the time. Uh, let me just name them so that we have uh, these terms out there. Um, one is the Deobandis, whom we've already mentioned. Uh, and another one is Ahle Hadith, the people of the Hadith or the prophetic um, re, uh, sayings of the prophet. Uh, so all three really had a lot in common, despite the fact that we tend to think of them in different frames. Uh, the Deobandis, the Borelwis, and Ehli Hadith were all uh, defined themselves in, as reformist movements. That is to say, they wanted to reform the way people lived their daily lives uh, at the everyday level. And this was important in the context, as I said, of the onset of British rule, because now there was a vacuum in terms of there was no Muslim source of political power. Um, and so the ulama, who are the religious scholars in Islam, um, seem they they really kind of now have a greater role in in the lives of uh, everyday Muslims in terms of providing guidance. Uh, and and so it was as moral leaders uh, that these three uh, that the ulama in these three movements um, 
the role that they they played back in the late 1800s when they all started. So I wanted to make just point that out that they are the Borelwis are actually in that same group of reformists. Now, on the other hand, it must also be said that they are also quite different from the other two. And to understand this quickly and easily, one just needs to think of how all three of these reformist groups looked to the example of the Prophet Muhammad for um, uh, guidance on how to live their everyday lives. But they had a different perspective. So the Prophet Muhammad being the uh, the person who received the uh, revelation of the Quran. And of course, he was the first Muslim. He was the model Muslim. That is true for all Muslims throughout the world, regardless of their um, local identities or sectarian identities. But within that overall frame, Muslims nevertheless have, a, have different perspectives or on, on him. So for instance, the Ahli Hadith, are uh, one could say they they are actually the uh, allied in some ways to the Wahhabis in um, Saudi Arabia, not directly. There are differences between them, um, but nevertheless, in terms of general outlook, the Ahli Hadith, for instance, are. Um, uh, they revered the prophet, they respect the prophet, but they regarded him as a more or less a, an ideal human figure um, and, and, and did not ascribe any um, extra miraculous kind of um, abilities to him. They also frowned on the Sufi tradition, which is the mystical tradition in Islam. Um, so they, they kind of stand at one end of this uh, continuum. Uh, then I would put the Deobandi somewhere in the middle uh, because they were, unlike the Ahli Hadith, they looked to the uh, Prophet Muhammad as somebody who was a, was a um, Sufi. Uh, he, they, they certainly accepted Sufism. Um, and therefore, they did ascribe mystical qualities to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but nevertheless, they are fairly restrained in terms of uh, practices that they approved of, like which we will talk about, I'm sure, um, in the day-to-day -day lives of, of Muslims. Now, the Burelwis, the reason that we often people think of them as Sufis or mystics, and not as scholars and not as reformers is because they took a very uh, mystical approach to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, so there's, I have a, a little uh, quote from a scholar uh, called Nabida Khan, a young uh, scholar who, who writes about the relations between uh, Burelwis and Deobandis. And she talks about the Ahle uh, Hadiths have respect for the Prophet, she says. The Deobandis have love for the Prophet. And the Borelwis have passionate love for the Prophet. I like this because it allows us to see them together and yet to see how they are different from one another. Um, so, yes, I think I would just... Um, 
maybe stop here for this question and just reiterate that we must not see the Borelwis as Sufis alone. We must always uh, see them as both uh, scholars who hark back to the scholarly tradition uh, and in, in the like the others, they were uh, like the Deobandis, they were Hanafi uh, Sunnis, that is to say, they followed the Hanafi school of law, which is one of four major uh, schools of law for Sunnis. Um, and they applied always one rule in their, uh, in, in, in their teaching, which was that um, Sufism or Tasawwuf, as they call it, must always be uh, maintained within the bounds of Sharia. So, so they, they, that is what constituted uh, the reformist platform, that you have, both are good, both are necessary, but Sufism must remain within uh, limits that are determined by Sharia. So I would start with those, those uh, defining characteristics. That, that's really very, very helpful, Usha, that, uh, as you said, that point that you finished with, that, that this notion that, that the, the Sufi practices and the Sufi kind of higher kind of mystical doctrines, let's say, were, were very important, but they need to be not taken to such a, let's say, a level of ecstasy, such a level of, of kind of passion and intoxication, I suppose, is the language of the Sufis would say, that one starts breaking the the bounds of, of, of behavior, of outward behavior, that the the inner, let's say, mystical intoxication doesn't force one to outwardly break the religious law, the laws of behavior. And of course, these are points of debate among Sufis yeah. and other Muslims themselves for a thousand years by this point, you know, or indeed right. more from, you know, one of the key founders of the Sufi tradition, Abu Yazid of Bistam, who I think it died in 857, if I remember correctly. And, and even back then in the ninth century, these debates about, well, is this the right way to, to be a Muslim, to be a Sufi or not? Mm -hmm. I think another really very helpful point you make, and a really, I think, very helpful word that you use, actually, is, is a continuum. Mm -hmm. that, that these all, all the movements that you've, you've sketched out for us here, the, the Bareilavis, but also the Deobandis and the Ahli Hadith, they're all uh, Sunnis. So, and therefore, they're all following the, the sunnah, the model, the exemplary model of the Prophet Muhammad. But they're interpreting that model and indeed then the meaning of, of who Muhammad was mm -hmm. and what Muhammad's role is to, to the believer, to the Muslim, in, in quite different ways. And I think another really key point that I'll, 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 I'll sort of emphasize as well is, is, is what you mentioned of, with all three movements as well, this heightened role of the the ulama, the, the scholars, the clerics of Islam, literally were the men, you know, the learned class. Mm -hmm. And this is all the more important then, isn't it? This later second half, last quarter even of the 19th century, when the last Mughal emperor in 1858 has been deposed and exiled by, by the British. And even though he hadn't really had much power for 50 years or even 100 years, the mm -hmm. Mughal emperor still, the fact that he was a presence there on the throne was mm -hmm. kind of symbolically really important. So for kind of leadership of the community then, the ulama, who had always been there, it's an old Arabic word again, isn't it? Dating back to the, the early period of Islam, but the, the ulama, the clerics, they assume or indeed try to, to, to acquire sort of greater 
leadership really over the Muslims of the subcontinent in in legal as well as let's say kind of moral and spiritual or indeed mystical ways. So let's turn more closely to the to the founder and namesake of Berelvism, Ahmed Rizahan Berelvi, who is, also took his name from the, the town where he was from, a, a Berelian. He lived between 1856 and 1921. So can you give us an outline of both his life and his key concerns as a Muslim? Okay. Okay. So uh, in terms of his uh, biography, um, he came from... Um, um, of Bataan, he was of Bataan descent. That is to say, his ancestors were migrants from Afghanistan, um, and they they initially uh, must have joined uh, Mughal uh, uh, service as soldiers, uh, and uh, they. Uh, but gradually, as the Mughal Empire began to weaken, uh, ancestors. Ahmad Raza's ancestors um, moved on to uh, different parts of North India, especially in what is today Uttar Pradesh, um, and eventually settled in what's the western part of the state, which is called Rohilkhand. Um, and again, another transformation over time was that um, within like two or three generations before Ahmad Raza, his uh, ancestors turned away from the military uh, life and um, and uh, they were landowners and uh, they turned to scholarship. So his grandfather um, had a reputation as a very uh, learned and holy man. Um, and his father was also, he was a reis, that is to say a local um, gentry member of the uh, part of the gentry uh, but he too uh, was a scholar and he engaged in fact in scholarly debates which um, are kind of like a precursor to the debates which Ahmad uh, uh, Raza himself engaged in with ulama in his generation so this was his uh, background um, I'll, I'll just mention a few uh, key moments in his life that are indicative of uh, of uh, his work and his uh, scholarly um, concerns also. And they have to do with journeys that he went on. So uh, when he was about 19 or 20, he and his father, they were both looking for a Sufi master to affiliate themselves with. Um, and and um, here, the role of dreams is interesting because Ahmad Razai said to have had a dream where he was filled with longing um, to meet his his um, master, his Sufi master, and the Sufi master on his side apparently was also um, experiencing a, a great um, anticipation of this young man that he had would soon meet. So they come go to uh, a, a, a close to. Boreli, a small uh, rural town where he lived, and um, he then uh, they they take discipleship, or they affiliate themselves as Sufi disciples to him. Normally, the pattern is not quite so brief, and 
uh, it takes a while. Usually the disciple to be will stay in the presence of the master for perhaps a month or so, listen to him, get a sense of whether he is comfortable with with um, this person, whether he, uh, you know, whether he wants to enter into this relationship, because the relationship is for life. It's taken very seriously, the Sufi master Thai. Um, I must also mention an important thing that the person to whom Ahmad Raza uh, Khan affiliated himself was a Sayyid by descent. So a Sayyid is a person who has some kind of genealogical connection with the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and this is an important detail because for Ahmad Reza and many other Muslims, uh, uh, spiritual excellence follows in several, it, 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 it follows several paths, you could say. Uh, one is, of course, your degree of saintliness, your degree of uh, of just good sheer goodness and knowledge of the Muslim tradition. But then there is it doesn't hurt if you are um, affiliated or descended from, in some capacity, the Prophet Muhammad, because there is a certain amount of um, um, like blessing, you could say, baraka. Uh, that flows in your very veins if you happen to have that um, very special relationship of being a Sayyid. So I don't, it, I don't think it was accidental that uh, father and son chose uh, Shah Ali Rasul was his name, uh, the man to whom they affiliated themselves. Now, Shah Ali Rasul was an elderly man at the time he died within a few years. But Ahmad Reza maintained that tie uh, with his grandson who uh, became the successor to, uh, to the, uh, the, the uh, master who had just died. So in that sense, he maintained his Sufi connection with him, his master throughout his life. And uh, we'll talk about uh, practices associated with Sufism, and one of them is observing the death anniversary of uh, Sufi masters uh, as as a very important event in the calendar. So, so having affiliated himself now uh, with Shah Ali Rasul, the next big step was for, again father and son did this together. They went on Hajj. They went on the pilgrimage to Mecca, pilgrimage to Mecca, um, and there. They were. Um, they met a lot of many of the leading ulama in Mecca, and of course they also went to Medina, which is the burial site of the Prophet Muhammad, which Borelis regard as a place of great blessing, and they will never fail to go there if they can. Um, and so, uh, this is kind of like a rite of passage, and as it were, the the fact that they go on Hajj now. Ahmad Reza comes back to India after a few months, uh, having now got the title of Haji, uh, someone who has the uh, status of uh, uh, a man who has, or a person who has fulfilled this very important religious duty. Um, we fast forward uh, to, uh, well, the rest, meant most of his life he lived in Bureli, though he didn't, uh, travel here and there, but his life work was um, 
the writing of fatwas. And fatwas, of course, are these uh, rulings, uh, usually in response to a question received by anybody, uh, a person who has, um, you know, a, 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 what we would call a lay person uh, who has some kind of question on his or her mind. I like to, um, since our listeners may not be familiar with this terminology and, and also because the term fatwa is in the minds of many probably got an association with something sinister, you know, in the aftermath of um, uh, the famous uh, fatwa against Salman Rushdie by um, Ayatollah Khomeini many years ago. Um, I just wanted to ask, suggest to our listeners that maybe they might think of the ethicist um, in the New York Times, uh, where if you're familiar with that, you know that it's simply readers who uh, write in a question and then a person on the other side will answer the question with the best advice that um, he can give uh, on that particular issue but it, it doesn't have the force of law it doesn't have it's not even enforceable on the person who has asked the question so it's entirely uh up to the person to take the advice given or not of course in the muslim case and in the in this particular south asian case uh you would not have asked that particular alim your question unless you already had an inkling as to how he would answer your question and whether in philosophical terms whether you were you know comfortable with his likely interpretation so people had a choice as to which um, religious scholar they wanted to approach with their issue and then um, usually they would accept the advice given because uh, they already had some idea of how um, the answer would pan out. Okay, so fatwas are very, very important in Ahmad Reza's life. And of course, here he's assuming the role of a scholar, not a Sufi master. So once again, I'm bringing this up to, to once again emphasize that Borelis are scholars as well as Sufis. I'll end with one more journey, and that is uh, in 1906, uh, Ahmad Reza, of course, now he's his father has long since passed, uh, makes the Hajj to Mecca yet again. Uh, and this is a very significant um, event, not only in his own life, but in the uh, life of these movements in general, because uh, of the disputation that had been ongoing between Ahmad Reza and other uh, reformist movements in India. Uh, so he goes to Mecca, and while he's there, he asks certain ulama in Mecca and Medina for their uh, signatures of confirmation to a fatwa that he has written while he was in Mecca um, on uh, the reasons why he objects to the views of certain leading ulama in India, and he goes as far as to uh, accuse them of uh, unbelief or kufr, which is uh, a hard to translate term, uh, but it, 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 I, some people translate it as heresy, uh, unbelief. I'm not sure how you would like to translate it now, but uh, so this is a major event in the 
overall uh, lifetime of the prof of of Madrasa, and it makes it it has an impact back in India in terms of all the disputation that then follows because of course the the people who have been accused of um, being non-believers uh, are are most upset and they uh, then take it upon themselves to respond in kind and not in kind but with um, fatawa of their own so i i, I hope that answers that uh, broadly your question about his life and his key concerns also very effectively Ushun. i think the way you broke it up that into these these key journeys in his life and 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 in a sense he's rising prominence in a way and he's rising affiliation with different Sufi masters but indeed even with ulama who themselves are very prominent other scholars because they're in have the prestige of, of, of teaching and living in Mecca and Medina mm -hmm. and the importance that you said of, of, of the fatwa and I think that's really useful the fatwa is often translated as a, a legal opinion it's not really a legal ruling as you said because you know whether someone some executive power, some state enforces that is, is another matter entirely. And of course, in the in the British period, this is even more complicated. Um, but I really like the way you brought up the sort of the, the ethical dimensions, really. There's not necessarily a legal opinion. It's, a, it's an ethical uh, response to a question. What's the right thing to do with this situation? Should I eat that new food, wear this clothing? Should I behave in this way when I go to a, the tomb of a of a holy holy man, a Muslim saint, a Sufi, should I not go at all? You know mm -hmm. these things, and mm -hmm. and and as you've said too, this is these uh, ethical opinions that, that Ahmad Reza is is giving is indeed printing. I mean, this is a time when we have these fatwa wars, in a sense, with the spread of print among uh, South Asian Muslims, indeed Muslims elsewhere around the world. Uh, Ahmad Riz's opinions are being given out publicly then in this new printed public sphere and this increasingly, um, yeah, in a sense, polemical or disputational, as you said, environment. And these disputes, of course, are going, are going around about what is the right way to, to live? What's the right way to behave? What are the right beliefs to have? And what's the right way to, to be a Muslim? And all of these then are effectively then, on, as you said, on this continuum of, of interpretations of the meaning of the hadith, the sayings mm -hmm. of what the Prophet Muhammad said and did, the reports mm -hmm. of what the Prophet Muhammad said and did, and of course of the of the Quran and other histories of, as it were, earlier sort of legal precedent or indeed ethical precedent of, of earlier texts. But this all really boils down to, of course, the sunnah, the mm -hmm. model example of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And of course, so much of Ahmad Reza's teachings then revolve around the Sunnah. And, and, and that, in turn, the Sunnah, the model or example of the Prophet Muhammad, then the Sunnah gave Ahmad Reza's movement its official title of Ahli Sunnah wa Jamaa, the, the people of the prophetic tradition and the people of the community. And this is a another very old term going back to the ninth century, at, at least in Baghdad and Iraq and, and this period of the formation of the Sunnah. And then it's a claim of normativity. We're the normal people here. We're just doing mm -hmm. what the Muslims have always done. Mm -hmm. so, but nonetheless, of course, Ahmad Reza has his distinctive views of what the actual model, the example of, of the Prophet is, what the Sunnah is. So can you tell us then, how, how did Ahmad Reza view and indeed interpret the Sunnah? Okay, I'll try. This is... I think I had maybe the hardest question of all. Yeah. Um, so 
as you said, the Sunnah is uh, the life, the way you could say of the Prophet, which uh, is known to Muslims through the study of Hadith. So Hadith, um, as you know, consists of volumes and volumes and volumes of sayings, uh, reports of what the prophet during his lifetime um, was, uh, things he said or did, um, guidance he gave, and ev every detail, in fact, of his comportment in his um, life uh, is recorded in Hadith, the Hadith literature. And these Hadith are, um, over the years, they were classified. There was a great science attached to verification. Um, and they, so they currently exist in six collections, um, which are um, classified in terms of their uh, reliability. There are those which are by Bukhari, which are regarded as the most reliable for various reasons, because he was very rigorous in the tests to which he um, put these um, bits of information about the prophet. Um, and then there are those, they go again and along a continuum to those which are the least reliable. Um, so here I have to say a few things. One is that for um, Ahmad Reza, in contradiction distinction to, I think, some of the other movements, um, he didn't confine himself to hadith, which were only of the sound category, so those which were the most reliable. Um, for him, what was important was, what did it tell us? What did it teach us about the prophet? Do we learn something about him uh, that is you know, important for us to know that we can emulate, that we can um, love, our, our love for him will grow by knowing or practicing something that he is said to have done or said. Um, and if those, that information is in a collection which is less uh, reliable, one of the other collections, so be it, it doesn't, that doesn't uh, invalidate it. So the, 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 um, criterion was uh, the prophet himself what do we learn about him and can we uh, what do we glean even if it is uh, maybe uh, uh, not accepted by everybody so on the that's one thing about the hadith that I think we need to why sometimes his interpretations might have differed from those of the Deobandis or uh, the Ahli hadith um, another thing that we I think need to now talk about is uh, these two terms of sunnah, which is a good thing, which is uh, the model of the prophet that is to be emulated and followed, but it is contrasted with something, the opposite, which is bidah. Um, so bidah is something translated in English as innovation, but innovation doesn't capture the 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 larger meaning of this term at all. It is rather, it, it has a negative connotation. It, so uh, scholars usually translate it as reprehensible innovation. Um, and simply put, 
I was going to say, I mean, sometimes, even though it's not a correct translation, uh, specific, I often say it's a deviation, you know, in a sense. Okay. Although correctly, it's innovation. I often say it's, it's a deviation from the profits model, Abida. Okay, that's that's helpful. So, so there was, however, so the very concept of Bida means that this wasn't part of the normative uh, practice of the Prophet Muhammad, and therefore it's it should be shied away from. Muslims shouldn't follow that practice; should shun it. But on the other hand, over time, and this this predates uh, Ahmad Raza by many, many centuries, actually, um, scholars argued that just because something didn't exist in the time of the prophet didn't mean that it should be rejected. Um, after all, there have been so many new things that uh, Muslims and others have had have adopted, which are all to the good. Um, and so we they distinguish between a good bidah, bidat hasana, and a bad bidah. Uh, so, which of course should be uh, avoided, um, and therefore many of the Sunni Sufi practices which Ahmad Raza defended in his fatwas uh, were actually those which some groups of Muslims at the time said were bidas. So, for instance, one very famous um, dispute and long-standing one was whether it was uh, legitimate and. Uh, and um, correct uh, to celebrate the prophet's birthday. So it's called Maulid in um, in Arabic, and in India it's termed Milad, um, and it refers to uh, celebrations that uh, have apparently started back in the 900s during Fatimid rule in Egypt. Uh, of celebrating the Prophet's birthday because it is a, obviously for Muslims a very happy occasion. Um, but now to go back to those three groups of ulama we, we were talking about, he, he, they took different positions on this question. Uh, so the Ahle Hadith rejected it out of hand. Absolutely no. This is a bidah. It didn't exist during the first three generations. Um, the prophet's time and then his successors, um, and therefore it is um, it is um, reprehensible. Uh, the Deobandis were a little on the uh, uh, fence about it, uh, so they did not, especially some of their. Uh, Haji Imdadullah, who who was the Sufi master of many of the Deobandi. Um, ulama at the time, he kind of said, well, it depends on the intention of the um, worshiper, of the believer. If the uh, intention is to deify uh, the Prophet Muhammad, then it is absolutely forbidden because monotheistic um, God's sovereignty must by all means necessary be defended and maintained. But on the other hand, if it is simply to um, honor him and celebrate him, then there is nothing wrong with it. So, so some Deobandis, I think, uh, thought that, well, it's okay to do, but not quite, um, you know, in a large gathering or um, so on. So that's, that's why I'm saying I think they, they uh, were on the fence on this issue. And of course, for the Barilwis, uh, as you can imagine from everything we've said, uh, it was an absolute good. This was a Hassan, uh, Bidat Hassana. 
So there was no nothing wrong with it. And except, of course, once again, it had to be within the bounds of Sharia. So here there were boundaries. There were things that were forbidden. For instance, gambling, um, consuming hashish, dancing, singing, which were practices that sometimes went on in um, Sufi hospices and um, um, places of gather- where people gathered. But the Borelis were very, or Ahmadreza especially, was very, very categorical about those kinds of things not being allowed. Uh, but short of that, yes, there was nothing wrong with Amilad. And in fact, it was a good thing. Um, so, um, I think that should give us a bit a better picture of how, let me also say that um, the Sunnah was something that really was uh, a guide to every single thing that he himself did in his life. So, for instance, um, how he dressed, again, um, it was with always with the prophet in mind and how did the prophet do such and such thing because that is what he himself wanted to emulate to to the extent possible um the sources tell us that he, he was um he was careful about things like so when he's going to the mosque he will enter the mosque with his right foot when he leaves the mosque he will leave the mosque with his left foot first um when he is sitting in his library um he will be very careful not to extend his foot in the direction of the kaaba which means he obviously would have known which uh, way the kaaba was given the importance of the qibla for muslims when they pray um so but that was a little detail never extend your um foot in that direction because the foot of course is a sign of disrespect and you never want to um, in the slightest way be disrespectful toward the the holiest places um, you know for Muslims. Um, these are some of the things that come to mind in terms of how, how uh, the what the Sunnah meant to him and I have to say that this what I've just said about his attention to detail, you could probably say that about the Avandis. Um, you could, I'm sure, say that about Ali Hadid. Um, so this is not something particular to the Borelwis, but it was definitely important. And he tried to also always in his um, dealings with ordinary people to um you know, highlight the importance of these daily practices so that one could see in one's demeanor, in one's dress, in one's comportment, that one was a Sunni Muslim. And in some ways, people also signaled their Borelwi identity. This is really, again, very, very illuminating because you're giving us this this sense of the the, the small details of, of such piety, how one sits at any or how one where one sits and in a position mm. or whatever it is at, at any point in the day, as well as these loftier, let's say, mystical experiences that we might come onto, as well as, as these tiny little details of life. 
Mm-hmm. And this importance of a bidder, this uh, innovation, or as I've sort of you know translated, a deviation from the prophet's mm-hmm. example, from the sunnah, that's mm-hmm. really important too. And, and often, at least in my teaching, I'll often sort of give a, a comparison for students of the, the debates among Christians in the Reformation. This is a period of reform. <laughs> mm-hmm. We use in, in Urdu and Arabic, isn't it? It's Islam, but, you know, reform like reformation in Europe. And, and just as the debates between Protestants and Catholics in Europe were, well, the Protestants, the reformers would say, well, what you're doing there, going to these saints' tombs or having these holy day holidays, these carnivals, Mm-hmm. Like the festivals in India that we might discuss. These mm-hmm. weren't in, in the Gospels. These weren't in the Scripture. These weren't in the example of Jesus. And then, of course, mm-hmm. Catholics with the counter-reformers, one might say the counter-reformation of the Catholics, would just want to say, well, yeah, they're, but they're still good. They still bring us closer to God. They still bring perhaps the ordinary people, ordinary believers, mm-hmm. closer to God. So there's a kind of a parallel there, I think, in religious history that might help mm-hmm. some readers grasp that this is, is not particularly arcane and and, and unique mm-hmm. to, to Islamic history, these larger debates. Mm-hmm. Ahmed Reza then, as you've established, is, is an alim, he's one of the ulama, he's one of the scholars, he uses the, the, the methods of the scholars, formal criteria, mm-hmm. methodology to, to interpret the, the hadith and the ways you described, but he's also a Sufi, he's undertaken a formal Sufi initiation, uh, the practices, meditations, etc., associated with that, and and in his writings, then and in his fatwas, his his ethical opinions, his legal rulings, he's defending various Sufi traditions, practices that other reformists, the Deobandis and Ahlidith especially, were criticizing in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, perhaps let's turn now from the man to his legacy down through. The 20th century, after after he died in 1921, just over 100 years ago. So, how did Bareilb Islam maintain the legacy of Sufi Islam then throughout the 20th century? Um, Niall, if I may just rephrase your question a little bit. Um, so they, they they don't, I think, have a Sufi. Uh, legacy. I, I mean, the legacy is again to go back to my insistence on of, on putting him within both uh, the scholarly and the Sufi worlds. Um, it was both. So it was the scholarly as well as the Sufi. Um, how have his followers maintained that legacy? Um, I think in the way that other movements have also remained very vi- vibrant to this day. Um, so one, one way would, have been, would be through the uh, building of uh, seminaries or madrasas. Madrasas were not as important for him personally, madrasa, but in the course of time, uh, there were very important Burelbi uh, uh, madrasas that were established in uh, Lahore, for example, in the 1920s and 30s by one of his followers. Uh, then um, more recently, there's now a very big Madrasa for boys in the East uh, UP town of uh, Mubarakpur. Uh, and uh, that is, I would say, the biggest um, seminary right now. And more recently, something that I have been engaged in um, studying is girls' seminaries, uh, which have become um, also been growing in number in the in recent, you know, since the 1990s. So seminaries definitely are 
an, an important way of teaching the tradition um, and of of um, inculcating those values in a young student who will then um, have internalized that worldview. Um, in fact, there is a, a, a book um, about that madrasa in um, uh, Mubarakpur, where, reading which I realized that a person may not be a quote unquote, where are we going in um, and, and, and beginning, you know, as a six or eight year old, um, even identifying that themselves that way. But by the time eight years later, they're finished, they have kind of somehow become a Borelwi. And, and so these madrasas are important in that regard. Um, then there are, of course, the um, uh, Sufi hospices, which are um, so uh, uh, places where uh, there are tomb complexes, uh, and there are hospices. These are the two which usually go together. Um, and they are centers for um, Sufi activities, for um, especially the annual uh, death ritual, death, death celebration, you could say, of a um, former master. So the, this, the word in Arabic is really um, um, fascinating. It is urs. And uh, it which means a wedding. So far from being an occasion of sorrow, the Urs is actually a celebration because it is visualized as the, the saint or the holy person whom you revered while he was alive has now joined God and in a sense become God's bridegroom, uh, which is an imagery that is a bit odd, but very interesting. Um, and so Urs is another uh, controversial practice that Burleys um, uh, engage in and, and encourage, whereas some of the other uh, movements discourage them for reasons similar to the Milad. Um, and then we have another very interesting way in which these ideas were um, propagated were oral debates back in the 19th century. Um, so there were, of course, journals and um, print the print medium has been, as many, many scholars have pointed out, very, very important. But there, it was accompanied often by uh, oral disputation, which never changed anyone's minds. But it was it put on display the learning and the, um, I don't know how you would put this, the thinking behind the logic of a certain position that that movement had adopted on whatever the topic was. Um, and then people got to see it. It was like a, a performance. Um, and, and so oral debates were very uh, frequent in the 19th century. And I think occasions that people enjoyed, it might last have lasted as much as three days sometimes. So these are some of the uh, significant ways in which they, uh, you know, continued uh, the the message and the thinking and the teaching of um, the worldly movement and why to this day it is really very uh, vibrant and well has spread wherever the South Asian diaspora has spread um, as as uh, you know both in 
Britain and in the United States and in South Africa and so many other places uh, in the English-speaking world, as you pointed out, that there are Borelwis today. That, that, that's great. And particularly this explanation you've given of, of how it is that the teachings of a, a single individual, in a sense, mm. that are nonetheless drawing on, as the title we've seen of his movement, the Atlas Anoa Jamaz, if sort of saying, this is the norm, this is what people have always done. So yes. it's a single individual, Ahmed Reza, but he's drawing on practices and indeed texts, ways of teaching that lots of people have, are already familiar with. But nonetheless, his take on them, and indeed, in some ways, his his reform of them, as, as you said, that you can go to an Urus, one of the, the death celebration of a saint, but you, you shouldn't do that or this yes. while you're there. Yes. Celebrate, yeah, but, but yes. leave off the hashish, <laughs> leave <laughs> off the ganja, as one would say in, 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 in Hindu Urdu or the chas. So, yes. yeah, so he, he's a reformer, but in, in many ways a defender of Sufi practices as, as a scholar, and as you said, through these scholarly methods. And and that then the the ways institutionally, I suppose, of of how the man becomes a movement. Let's say it's so often, you know, many books, including your own, have talked about the Deobandi, sorry, the Berelvi movement, and yes. how that movement gathers pace is the founding of various posthumous madrasas, really, by his followers, various seminaries, these oral debates, which would gather hundreds, thousands of followers, and of course, in, in by the 20th century, having great big loudspeakers and so on as well, <laughs> of, of, you know, kind of really great public debates. And, and of course, crucially also, as we've mentioned then, this key with the Urs, the spiritual wedding that is the, the death anniversary of the saints. And and perhaps some listeners may be surprised to hear that, that there are these Urs ceremonies held at the, the graves, the shrines, the hospices of, of Sufi saints throughout South Asia. There are probably hundreds, probably thousands of these throughout the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh as a whole, as well as in places like South Africa and indeed even the UK. Um, and in South Asia, at least, some such as the great annual Urs, the wedding death ceremony of Munadin Shishti, can bring in several hundred thousand participants. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are on a, a huge scale, really. So mm -hmm. again, this is another way of bringing not only sort of, let's say, learned or studious young people to the mm -hmm. rest of the ceremonies, but also lots of ordinary people as well. So turning to these developments then we've seen from the man to the movement across the, the 20th century, let's turn to the 21st century. And can I ask you, how are Ahmed Reza's teachings passed on and practiced today? Well, um, I would say the one significant development, of course, in the last part of the 20th century was the independence of uh, South Asia from British rule and the emergence of the nation states of Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. And therefore, if you examine not just the Borelwis, but all the uh, reform movements of that 19th century period, you'll observe that the histories of these movements in different South Asian nation states are quite different. Um, and this is not surprising, but interesting that what was once a South Asian phenomenon now can be studied um, in total because they've had different histories. So in, in India, and I'm more familiar with the Indian situation than with that in, of Pakistan, um, but in India, because of um, the political structure 
of a democratic state that adopted secularism as its um, leading principle and that uh, tried to be inclusive of religious minorities and so on. Um, the Burilvis have been um, culturally, uh, you could say, active and, um, you know, by doing, uh, creating the madrasas and seminaries and so on that we talked about just now. Um, but they haven't uh, um, taken any stand in terms of politics. Uh, they have been quietist, you could say, politically quietist. So that's a development in itself. And if you compare that with the Barelvis in Pakistan, uh, again, you, it's been written about with great um, erudition by Kasim um, Zaman. Um, um, and um, where you see that they have a political party um, where, and the Dewandis the, the have their own political party. Uh, and uh, they ally with uh, different uh, secular parties, and, and therefore they have had a very prominent role in the national politics of Pakistan, including on the Ahmadi issue, uh, and uh, then more recently with, uh, unfortunately, there has been so much uh, anti-Shi'i sentiment which has also taken on political overtones and then of course the Taliban have been very active and that whole development has been significant in in Pakistani politics so my take takeaway at the end of our conversation is simply that the history of this movement um, has assumed different forms it's taken different uh, directions in the different nation states that we are have today. And uh, I have focused uh, very much on education in my more recent work, and I continue to be interested in the Borelwis. And I spent some time studying a girl's madrasa in uh, West UP, close to Boreli, in fact, and um, have just written a book about it. So... Well, I'm sure um, many listeners, including myself, will be looking forward to, to, to reading that book. Professor Ushisanyal, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much, Nile, for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Dark, 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 dark,